Computer Center. This is Inside Politics with Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. It is a gorgeous day here in Kamloops. Blue skies, sunshine. Uh, it's going to be fairly warm moving into that spring season. Uh, real pleasure to be joined, as always, for the panel this morning. Global BC's Keith Baldry, the Vancouver Suns, Vaughn Palmer, and BC Today's Shannon Waters. Welcome all. Good morning. Good morning, Shane. Good morning. Uh, guys, why don't we start off with measles? It was a pretty major announcement this week from uh, Adrian Dix, the health minister. They want to boost immunization rates uh, from about the 80s or so percentile up to about 95%. So the campaign is going to focus on uh, mainly school-age children. We're going to see uh, in-school immunization clinics, in some case mobile clinics uh, and community centers, etc., but also in schools as the health authorities work with the various school districts. Uh, obviously, Keith, a very, very serious campaign and a serious topic. The question is, uh, can they be successful in getting it done? Oh, Keith, you there? All right, Vaughn, can we go to you and we'll sort out the Keith thing here? Yeah, look, this is a, a very serious thing. Uh, in fact, you can you can tell how serious it is, Shane, because the government didn't play politics with it. Uh, we're so used to government announcements where they began by telling you this is all a result of 16 years of bad government by the Liberals. On this one, Dix just waded in and said, look, we've got a problem here. We've had a significant decline in the benchmark measure of whether or not people or children, in fact, are inoculated against measles. So we were in the low 90s not so long ago. We're now headed low 80s in terms of a percentage of seven-year-olds vaccinated. And another problem that cropped up in the recent outbreak, Shane, was that it turned out that the health regions and the schools didn't really have complete records of whether or not children were vaccinated or not vaccinated. Their records were in different places. Parents forgot. Records lost. People moved. So what we've got now is a comprehensive effort to get people vaccinated, to get children vaccinated, and get the rate up, and then move in September to mandatory registration, not mandatory vaccination, mandatory registration. Uh, look, I don't think there's any doubt that they're going to improve the numbers. How far they will get remains to be seen. The government, uh, Adrian Dix, says they're going to report monthly on that rising number, and they hope to eventually get us to what is regarded as the optimum safe level, 95% vaccination rate. Yeah, and there's lots of work in here for health authorities and schools. Some of that information we're going to get in May, uh, particularly on uh, its two phases, the immunization clinics, uh, April to June, and then the uh, gathering, the mandatory gathering of vaccination records for students come September. So some of the school information uh, has yet to arrive. Um, but uh, as I'm sure you all heard, I asked Adrian Dix whether there's going to be resources in place, funding, uh, his answer basically said, okay, listen, we're spending $3 million to double the dose of vaccinations. Didn't really touch on any other topic, but how important is it that health authorities and school districts get funding to deal with this kind of thing? Because it is going to require some heavy lifting. Shannon? Yeah, I mean, you are going to have some significant work to do in order to implement these policies. And as you pointed out, the government has said, okay, we're buying, we're buying the vaccine. I believe they 
thought they were going to purchase about 120,000 doses initially, at least. Um, But in terms of actual funding to have those vaccines administered by the health authorities in cooperation with the school districts, we don't actually know what that's going to be or if there's going to be any. So it'll be interesting to see as they start moving ahead with this, and it's starting very, very quickly, um, where those details come in, because it does seem like the government is serious about getting this done and serious about having an effect um whether or not it does have the intended effect we're not sure yet the health minister had basically said you know any kind of increase in the vaccination rate will make this campaign a success and that's what we're going for yeah um at the end of the, it was interesting to hear adrian dix talk in terms of the vaccinations where he said okay listen parents sometimes get caught behind uh there was a bunch of reasons there and he did acknowledge the anti-vaxxer thing but he didn't seem to want to single them out to any great degree and i think it's an issue worth singling out because we have a pool of people dealing with half-truths lies misinformation um that they are getting online that have gone off half-cocked and have started this movement that it to some degree has contributed to declining immunization rates. Uh, Keith, to to what degree do we need to really take these anti-vaxxers on, be it at a provincial government level, an information campaign, or other ways to deal with this pool of misinformation out there? Yeah, no, that's a good point. I've talked to Adrian Dix about this. He's reluctant to really sort of take them on in an aggressive fashion. He thinks that can actually make things worse than cause people who are sort of glommed on to misinformation and and, uh, uh, non-research to hunker down and and harden their opinions even more. That to be seen as... as the government coming after them, and this is one of the points he makes, is a lot of anti-vaxxers are suspicious of government and they're conspiracy theorists. And suddenly they see the government coming after them on the issue of vaccines could even harden their views uh, even more and entrench their views as wrong as they are uh, to the point of just them turning off completely any any message from the government. So that's where he thinks he's caught basically between a rock and a hard place. I agree with you, though, Shane. I mean, I, I do think there has to be a more aggressive... Um, campaign against anti-vaxxers and people who rely on ignorance uh, rather than than factual information and medical evidence uh, over something that literally endangers uh, children's lives. Yeah, and that's my take uh, as well. Dick says that though his estimate, his estimate is that it's one or two percent is the, are the holdouts, the serious holdouts against yeah. vaccination. And his view is, uh, if we can get it to 95% without picking a public fight or a legal battle with those people, we'll have gotten to the safe level without basically a public war over it. Yeah, and by the way, uh, some breaking news on that very topic, coincidentally, uh, just coming in from Interior Health, we have a second case of measles uh, confirmed in 100 Mile House. There's 19 cases in the province, 14 in the Lower Mainland. We had one previous case in 100 Mile House that we heard of before that was unconnected to the Lower Mainland outbreak. It was picked up traveling. We now have a second case in 100 Mile House. We'll have more on that, of course, uh, uh, on Radio NL uh, throughout the day. But a uh, big measles... Um, piece of news and interesting because Adrian Dick said he expected more cases in the days, weeks, and in fact, months to come. Um, Mm -hmm. To touch on Vaughn's point, though, and I get really frustrated because I have anti-vaxxers among my friends uh, from from back in the day in Abbotsford who I've encountered on Facebook, and you try and talk to these people, and they throw these fake facts at you, and they tell, you know, from myheavenlything.com and these crazy websites, and 
I, I, I kind of wonder how we deal with that because... Well, it's like arguing with Donald Trump. Yeah, to some degree it is, but, <laughs> but you don't... I think it's important not to kind of make them defensive, but at the same time, it is vastly irresponsible and could risk lives. So how do we talk to these people, well, Shannon? It's... I think that's a really sticky problem because, like you said, the, these opinions and these fake facts, they're not based in reason, so they're not susceptible to reasonable arguments and scientific research showing that overall vaccines are safe, they've been a huge public health good. Yes, there can be some very rare, although sometimes very serious, side effects from vaccinations, but most people don't have a problem with them, and they save so many lives. I've, I've had those conversations as well with people, you know, who believe either that there's a conspiracy by, say, pharmaceutical companies um, who just, yeah, it's, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is for something like that, but I do think that the health minister in this case for now is taking the right approach because as Vaughn said, going on sort of launching a campaign really targeting these people is likely to make a lot of them just kind of hunger down in those beliefs and feel that they're being persecuted for their own sort of personal expression. And this is the other thing I think that is a component of, of the anti-vaxxer argument that doesn't really work when you're talking about public health. They believe that it is just a personal decision, that it is their decision about, you know, what happens to their children and their children's bodies that they as parents are entitled to make when really when it comes to vaccines, it's not just a personal decision because it has consequences for other members of the community. Yeah, final word to you, Keith, because I think this is going to be one of the issues that's going to be hard to navigate in the fall when they have the mandatory vaccine registrations because there are going to be parents out there be they a small minority or not they're going to get their backs up on the wall uh, backs up over the term mandatory even though it's vaccine records and the the conspiracy theories and the fear on in that small segment is going to fly there is going to be some level of pushback from some people on that it, it should but to shannon's point which is an excellent one is this uh, this whole individual decision it you know as, as it's not it's a member of the of a community you have a responsibility to your community to make uh, decisions and actions that keep people safe in your community. And that means getting your kids vaccinated. The other thing I think that you have to keep in mind is the media and others should be aware of this false equivalency argument that for some, uh, you know, somehow the anti-vaccination argument is just as uh, uh, relevant and credible as the pro-vaccination um, argument. It's, it's completely two different things. We cannot, uh, in the media and elsewhere, cannot accredit the anti-vaccination movement with the same sort of legitimacy that uh, that uh, the vaccination movement has. It's not the same. They're not uh, equivalent. They're not both viable. Only one is really a credible argument and a credible position, and that's the only one that should be given any attention. All right, let's take a quick break uh, here, and we'll continue our conversation with Keith Vaughn and Shannon and talk about the dust-up involving the BC Care Providers Association right after this. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Accountable to you for Kamloops Computer Center. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL. 
Good morning and welcome back to the program. We're talking to Vaughn Palmer, Keith Baldry and Shannon Waters. Wow, what a dust up that exploded around 4 o'clock yesterday afternoon in the BC Care Providers Association. The broadside to this province's seniors advocate Isabel McKenzie demanding that she resign, her office be audited and its mandate reviewed. They waived uh, some FOI materials, emails, text messages, making the allegation that essentially that uh, she was uh, working with the HEU and crafting a residential care report last year. Uh, Isabel McKenzie, as you guys know, was fired back, uh, essentially telling the BC Care Providers Association to pound sand, saying that they're providing just a partial picture and just a certain uh, portion of emails to to back up that claim. Uh, Vaughn, to you, uh, I know Adrian Dix has, has given uh, Isabel McKenzie her uh, a void of, uh, vote of confidence here, but uh, how serious is this uh, or not? Well, the independent watchdogs of the legislature are independent, and uh, she's a she's an independent watchdog as well. So, uh, you know, I think I think a more respectful and better approach on this would have been to go to her with the emails, uh, which raised some questions, and say, could we get an explanation? And if the explanation to them did not seem adequate, if it didn't seem to cover all the bases then I think going public. But going public and calling for her resignation before she's even had a chance to explain herself is, I, I, I just think it undermines these, uh, the, the office prematurely. Uh, I think it would have been wiser to, as I said, go through some process with her first. That doesn't mean you couldn't at the end of it say her answers aren't very good and we still think she should go. Yeah, uh, Shannon, what did you read into this thing? I, I mean, it was it was such a, a, an explosion of activity, and then capped off by Adrian Dix at the end of the day on Twitter saying, "Hey, listen, uh, everybody, calm down." Basically saying, "Hey, I respect every, all the parties involved here. Uh, there's good debate, but uh, she stays where she is, and she's doing a fairly good job." And uh, I talked to Isabel McKenzie. I don't know if you did. Uh, she did not sound very happy about all this. No, and I mean, sort of to Vaughn's point, to have this organization just immediately go public calling for your resignation, um, providing these documents, which Mackenzie says only are only part of her communications with the hospital employees union and don't cover the full spectrum of, you know, sort of her concerns or consultations with them. Um, I can understand getting your back up over something like that. And I think Vaughn's right. I think it probably would have been more effective. It certainly would have looked maybe a little less um, political to, you know, have tried to address with the advocate um, their concerns about her consultation. Now, she says that she speaks to different parties about reports and has done so with the BC Care Providers Association before and, you know, has provided them with information ahead of a report being released, much in the way she's kind of saying that she did with the Hospital Employees Union last summer. She also points out that, you know, the BC Care Providers Association wasn't very happy with the report that she released last summer and maybe that's part of their motivation here. But definitely some late afternoon drama coming out of Hmm. what it was quite a busy day yesterday. Yeah, no, no kidding. Uh, Keith, uh, two things that the seniors advocate told me that sort of caught my ear when I was talking to her. One of them was, uh, she said, listen, if I did anything incriminating and the FOI did, why would I give them the documents to begin with if I was trying to hide my tracks? Uh, and the other was that uh, as an advocate, she doesn't think people want an advocate that is going to bow or bend uh, to an industry association. Uh, what's your read of this whole thing? 
Oh, yeah. Um, first of all, I got a lot of time for Daniel Fontaine. I've known him for a long time. I think he does great work, but I think he completely um, has mishandled this. I agree with Fontaine. You never play the resignation card at the beginning out of the blue. I mean, you, it, there's no groundwork laid for, to play the ultimate penalty card here. It was interesting. 15 minutes after they made their release, or about a half an hour after, I get this angry call from Adrian Dix, who's just spitting nails. He can't believe that they're, they're, they're make, making this call that she resigned. She was appointed by the Liberal government. She's not an NDP hack. Uh, she's also not a union hack. She came from the management side of private health care here in the capital region. Uh, so, you know, her background is completely got nothing to do with unions or the NDP. So for, for them to make these allegations with, on the basis of several emails, I thought was ludicrous. And uh, again, uh, she's not going anywhere. Adrian Dix is firmly in her corner. Uh, I'm not sure what the BC care providers do after this. I, I know it comes a, a week after, of course, Adrian Dix uh, made the order to bring a bunch of uh, home care uh, staff back into the health authorities' employment out of private health care providers who were members of the same organization that went after Isabel McKenzie yesterday. And I don't think you can sep uh, necessarily separate those two events. So, uh, no, I thought this was uh, overblown, uh, overextended by the, uh, by the association. And again, if anything, I think it's just cemented Isabel McKenzie in her position rather than weaken her. Uh, the one other aspect of this maybe worth talking about is uh, the care providers making a push that she should be more independent or that office should be more independent, much like an auditor general or an ombudsperson operating outside of government as opposed to uh, like a BC coroner service where she operates within government. Uh, anything to that, Vaughn? Is that an argument worth making or, or no? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, I refer to the independent officers of the legislature and their independence is written into legislation. But, you know, we've had some fairly independent advocates out there that are not actually that full arm's length protected. I think she's one of them. I think another example uh, was Perry Kendall as the province's chief medical health officer. I didn't hear him holding back on things like government gambling and vaccinations and everything just because he was worried about uh, political backlash with the government. So, yes, in the long run, uh, independent officer of the legislature, arm's length, uh, they, they do have a, a protection in legislation. But uh, I think we've seen some watchdog-like offices uh, perform pretty well even without that legislation. Yeah, and uh, to you, Shannon, should it be more independent or no? Um, I don't know that they have a lot of grounds here in what they've presented to really say that she's not independent. I mean, as an advocate, you're going to be considering sort of both sides of issues and organizations that affect the lives of seniors. So, I, you know, I... It, looking at someone's independence and how sort of functional their office is is worthwhile, but I'm just not sure that the Care Providers Association really connected the dots here to make that argument that her current actions mean that she is somehow beholden to the hospital employees union yeah. or the government, really. Yeah, final word to you, Keith, that I assume the next meeting, if there is one between these two, is going to be fairly frosty. Uh, does there need to be some bridge building here at all, or do, do we just carry on as is? Well, uh, first of all, to the matter of independence, I think she's demonstrated she is independent. And if anything, I think yesterday's episode will uh, heighten her that Adrian Dick acknowledging she can say what she wants, including he, he says she's she's come after him a couple times, and um, he's not fighting back against her. So I think, as Vaughn says, you know, the virtual health officer is a good example. These people are, you know, quasi-independent. And... 
Until there's evidence that somehow she's towing the government line on some sensitive issues, I think uh, the current situation is just fine. The NDP, when they were in opposition, actually called for the seniors advocate to be uh, an officer, an independent officer of the legislature. Maybe we'll get there at some point. I don't think see the necessary urgency uh, for it to happen now. In terms of bridge building, <coughs> I assume at some point they're going to have to have a meeting uh, at, over this issue because, of course, uh, the care providers do have a number of organizations that care for seniors, but uh, I think uh, I don't see Isabel McKenzie sort of groveling uh, in front of this group. I think it's the mm. other way around. Yeah. Okay, guys, let's take a quick break to the bottom of the hour. On the other side, we'll talk about the Alberta election and a whole lot more in this province as well. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. For Kamloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics. Once again, Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning and welcome back. Talking to Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer and Shannon Waters. Uh, guys, why don't we start uh, this segment with the province next door and work our way back home. Alberta Premier Rachel Notley dropping the writ this week, uh, setting the stage for what might be one of the nastiest Alberta elections of all time. Uh, Shannon, your take on, on this whole thing and how it's shaping up? Well, I was a bit surprised to see the writ drop. I have a colleague who is working in Edmonton covering things, and we had just been looking at the order paper when the session started, and the government had seven bills on the order paper, um, including one uh, regarding health care policies and support that they'd gone to the trouble of previewing the week before, having a health minister come out and talk about this legislation that they were going to be trying to pass in a spring session whose term at the time had not been defined. And then we come back the following week and the writ drops. And, of course, the legislation is going to be going nowhere. So it's going to be an interesting uh, an interesting election to watch for sure. There's already been some fireworks there from, from Rachel Notley against sort of Jason Kenney. Uh, and Kenney as well, like, coming out strong with his sort of the announcements around what his party is planning to do when they are likely elected um, next month. Well, careful with likely. Elections are a funny thing. But anyway, uh, Keith, <laughs> Keith uh, I know our colleague Gary Mason is, is already saying that uh, Rachel Notley timed things wrong uh, and jumped when she shouldn't have. Uh, she obviously sent some kind of blood in the water. Your sense? Well, I don't think... Um you know, whenever she called this thing, she was going to be behind the eight ball. I mean, she could have called it next week, next month, and the polls would be the same as they are today. Uh, she had to get in the fight at some point, so why not go? I know I'm talking to someone in her office the day before that why not go the day that Jason Kenney actually has to answer questions about uh, why one of his candidates was supporting white supremacy. I mean, you can't really ask for a better scenario for your opponent to be on the defensive like that. But that story seemed to disappear from the Alberta headlines pretty quickly, along with the uh, controversy about the, the previous uh, conservative uh, leadership campaign, which is accused of sort of uh, uh, in collusion with another candidate. Alberta is a conservative province. There's no question. Uh, other than a small enclave in Edmonton. The rest of the province is fairly right-wing. And Rachel Notley just simply has a huge uphill battle here. Her best hope, I think, is to um, try to attract some soft, mushy conservative voters, which is still a, 
a pretty uh, high bar to get over and uh, hope that perhaps there's a split on the right that somehow there is uh, you know a, d- a division amongst the conservatives of which there's no evidence that's going to happen so it's going to be an ugly campaign it's going to be already it's already starting off in a heavily negative tone look for the ndp to have a bunch of ads, they've already started with one uh, over, uh, you know, painting Jason Kenney in very menacing tones, very negative tones, being quasi-racist, anti-immigration, anti-gay, anti-you name it. Uh, that's what they're going to try to portray Jason Kenney as. And he runs behind his party in terms of personal numbers, and Notley runs ahead of her party in her numbers. But boy, it'd be it'd be a shocker if Jason Kenney doesn't emerge after this uh, in April as premier. Yeah, we'll have to see. Uh, one of the things that uh, I'm watching is we've seen this sort of new age of uh, I call it political radicalization where we just have people that are just so caught up in their entrenched camp that they've kind of crossed a line and I, I I will be watching to see how what level of crazy unfolds in Alberta because I'm already sort of worried about the federal election and uh, what some of these people on the fringe may or may not do. Vaughn, in this new age of, of what we're seeing out there and some people kind of getting down these rabbit holes online is that a concern when we look at alberta and or federally or no yeah i mean it is a concern although i will point out that the premier of alberta started her campaign launch by calling the leader of the opposition a liar three times a cheat (laughs) she said she doesn't actually think he's a racist but he's allowed racism to flourish in his party. So I don't know if the Internet trolls can top that or not. It's, it's set up for an ugly campaign. There's a fascinating B.C. angle in all this, too, Shane. The day before the Alberta election is called, the, the long-planned, long-scheduled B.C. court case where the B.C. government is trying to get some control uh, through environmental permitting over the construction, the twinning of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Now, I don't think they called the election because of that, but it did provide both leaders with something to say about British Columbia. And, of course, if Kenny wins, he said that... Look out, British Columbia. If the B.C. government continues to try to obstruct the construction of that pipeline, as he believes it's been doing for some time, Kenny says he'd have no hesitation about using the legislation in Alberta, which is not proclaimed, but it has been passed, that would allow Alberta to turn off the taps on oil coming to British Columbia. So, you know, we're standing on the sidelines, we're watching this thing happen, uh, but there are consequences potentially for British Columbia, and of course the other issue is, will BC New Democrats be discouraged from going across the mountains to help their Alberta counterparts win the election? Yeah. Uh, uh, John Horgan, the Premier, is on in the last segment, it's actually pre-recorded yesterday, I asked him that very question. Um, Let's toss, we're just about out of time here, I want to toss a couple issues at each of you, and start with you, Shannon. Uh, the Liberals on social media, for some reason, have been pounding this early election call, like somehow the Premier may be contemplating dropping the writ. Um, bit of a spoiler alert, I, I asked him about that uh, later in the show, in this next segment, matter of fact, and he says, no, he's, he's not going to be doing that. But any reason why the Liberals, I mean, is there a genuine fear out there? Is this positioning? Any idea what, why they would choose to go online and, and say, oh, oh, this might be happening? Shannon, you there? Man, we're having a hell of a time with the phones today. I'll pick uh, it up from there, Shane. Yeah. Um, I think this is basically a liberal fundraising ploy. Uh, the executive director, Emil Scheffel's uh, 
uh, email to everybody uh, was about just that. You know, we got to get ready. We're going to be in a, in a campaign, and I think that's just basically a way to raise money. But uh, as, as you've got John Horgan telling you, no, there's no election campaign this spring, but doesn't ever hurt a political party to sort of fan the flames and get people worried uh, on your side to get them to empty their pocketbooks. Okay. Uh, fracking, uh, Vanya, you had an interesting uh, column this week. Uh, the science panel released what it called a robust fracking report. Environmentalists immediately up in arms saying it's anything but, but it did highlight some concerns. You read on this thing? Yeah, there's a lot of major concerns. We don't, the, the panel, the three scientists, say we don't know nearly enough about the risks of fracking. We don't know nearly enough about whether or not our regulations are effective. They gave 100 recommendations to the government, and the government says they're going to act on those. Uh, the one thing you're not going to see is what the environmentalists want, which is a moratorium on fracking, mm -hmm. for the very simple reason that, as the panel points out, virtually all of the natural gas in British Columbia, including the stuff that comes to your house if you get natural gas, is fracked. And the government is not going to shut down an entire industry and the supply of natural gas to people's homes. The best we can get out of this is tougher regulation. And last question to you, Keith. Uh, you had an interesting column uh, looking at the latest contract for doctors and creative ways they've been able to get around the government's 2-2-2 two, two two bargaining mandate, which, of course, has immediately drawn some very increased interest from the BC Teachers Federation, which is currently at the table. Uh, your read on how this is going to cause ripples across, and, and will it trigger any Me Too clauses or, or no? Well, uh, it was interesting. I showed the, the doctor's contract to BC, the new BCTF president, Terry Maureen, and her, she, her eyes lit up. She went, whoa, this is very interesting, because, of course, it does have a number of uh, provisions in it that go beyond the 2-2-2 two, two, and two mandate, including a $7,500 essential signing bonus, which is extraordinary. Um, in terms of Me Too clauses, uh, Doctors of BC is not a union. Uh, it's a group of uh, sort of self-employed business people. Uh, so the, the comparisons between them and other unions are a bit disingenuous, and I, that's why I don't think that would trigger a Me Too clause. The government insists that even though the, the doctor is getting 8.8% .8 over three years, it's really only 6%, as everybody else is getting, except they're getting 2.8% to cover up business expenses and some benefits, along with that signing bonus. But Maureen views this as a as a, an example of some creativity that may be applied to the TF dispute. One of the issues teachers have had for years, and rightly so, is they pay out of pocket for a whole bunch of classroom expenses. Should that not be treated as a business expense, such as the doctors are, are, were successfully able to argue at their negotiating table? I think this gives the TF a bit of a, a bit of a, another arrow in their quill, uh, in, the, in the quiver, and I think um, I think it's a reason why I think there's more optimism now that the TF is going to be able to negotiate a contract with a few extras beyond the two, two, and two, which is what they need to take to, to the membership. So a, a fairly generous doctor's contract could actually ironically lead to a successful uh, BCTF negotiation. Interesting times. Uh, Keith Von Shannon, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Talk to you guys soon. There's Keith Baldry, Von Palmer, and Shannon Waters. So take a quick break. On the other side, the Premier of the province, John Horgan. Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. You're listening to Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. 
Good morning. Welcome back to the show. Uh, we talked to Premier John Horgan when he was in Kamloops in a pre-recorded conversation yesterday. Without further ado, here is the Premier of the province, John Horgan. Good morning, Premier. How are you? Good morning, Shane. Really well. How about you? I'm fantastic. I, f- I think you're in our fine city this morning, yeah? I am indeed. Another beautiful spring day in, in Kamloops. Uh, I'm glad spring showed up. I was worried. Uh, uh, we have uh, the daffodils are breaking through the, the snow in Victoria, but uh, it's been an odd. It's been an odd few months uh, weather-wise, for sure. Yeah, no kidding. Hey, I want to toss uh, something unusual at you off the top, just because it seems to be a thing out there, mostly being pushed by the BC Liberals. So I thought I'd go straight to the horse's mouth, as it were. Uh, a lot of talk about uh, parties going to an election footing, that there's going to be an early election call. So straight to you, uh, is an early election in the cards or something off the table? I have no intention of uh, calling an election. Uh, I believe uh, we got an endorsement from uh, the public in the by-election in Nanaimo. Uh, I've been traveling around B.C. the past couple of weeks. I've been in the north in Smithers. I've been in the uh, south Okanagan. I've been in Kelowna. I'm here in Kamloops. was out in Merritt yesterday. And uh, no one's talking about an election. They're talking about uh, making uh, progress on some of the challenges families are facing. Uh, I'm getting mostly positive uh, reinforcement for that, so I don't see any reason to have an election. I'm I'm focused on trying to make life better for people, and that's the, what government's supposed to do. All right, I'm glad we got that clarification. Uh, I want to talk Trans Mountain. That's an issue important here. The National Energy Board put out with a report recently saying uh, we're basically maxed out, both pipeline and rail, for moving oil to our economic detriment. Uh, considering the record levels of oil by rail rolling through the province, through our city, through parks, important streams and rivers, uh, has your thinking on opposing the Trans Mountain pipeline changed at all or no? My concern about the pipeline, uh, Shane, has always been uh, this is a, an opportunity to export raw product, not just uh, upgraded oil, but diluted bitumen. And so the objective of the twinning of the pipeline is not to provide more uh, gas for BC uh, uh, consumers to reduce costs, uh, bring on more supply. It's about going directly from uh, the interior of Canada to somewhere else. And the, the consequences of that for our marine environment are significant. I don't dismiss for a second the, the challenges of oil by rail. And that's why our reference case, which began this week in the B.C. Court of Appeal, about giving the people of B.C. an opportunity to regulate and manage the movement of this product, not just by pipeline, but by rail as well, is so important to our environment and to our economy because the consequences of a spill, whether it be uh, in the interior or on the coast, are significant. And I think most British Columbians get that. I've not been uh, belligerent about this. I've been focused on trying to make sure that I'm doing my job uh, as leader of the government to protect the interests of the people of B.C. In uh, that reference case uh, yesterday, uh, the court, uh, lawyer for the federal government said uh, uh, your government is overreaching and uh, essentially legislative changes amount to a Trojan horse. Uh, any response to that or no? Well, the, that lawyer is being paid by the federal government to make those arguments, and uh, good for him or her. I don't know uh, uh, what uh, else the federal government can do. Uh, it is a federally regulated pipeline. I understand that. The, the jurisdiction is pretty clear on that. But what's been unclear for a long, long time, and not just on this question, but broadly speaking, is who has jurisdiction over environmental protection? It wasn't contemplated by the founders of Canada when they wrote up the British North America Act, and it wasn't uh, changed in any meaningful way when uh, the first Trudeau uh, 
government brought back the Constitution in 1980-82. So, uh, you know, this is an area of, of dispute, uh, not just in this case, but in many cases across the country. And uh, when you're in a cooperative federalism, as we are here, where we have a central government that manages external affairs, uh, um, military, uh, defense, uh, inter- external relations, the post office, taxation, all of the things that the federal government's responsible for. That's fine, but the provinces are responsible for the land and resources, and I believe the provinces should be responsible for protecting and stewarding that land and those resources. All right, speaking of those resources, uh, salmon's a big one for this province, and including locally here. Uh, your government unveiling the wild salmon strategy. Here in the interior, we have absolutely paltry return numbers for the steelhead for both the Thompson and the Chilcotin. Uh, matter of fact, the iconic sockeye, the dominant four-year return, is down by about 14 million fish from what it was eight years ago. So 24 million uh, then, about 10 million now. Uh, obviously, we need to save these fish, but in your mind, in some of these cases, is it just too late or no? Well, uh, it's not, not unlike the uh, mountain caribou issue. Uh, we have uh, stocks that are, that are on the brink, no question. Uh, when it comes to salmon, I believe we need to act, and that's why I pulled together uh, a disparate group of people, commercial fishers, recreational fishers, indigenous leaders, community leaders, uh, environmental organizations, to say how can we uh, go to Ottawa with a unified voice about how we protect and preserve and enhance our wild salmon stocks. And I was really delighted with the response I got. Uh, people put down their their singular position and tried to find a position that was in the interest of everyone, but most importantly, in the interest of wild salmon. And so we we got a report from this group. I've been in regular contact with the Minister of Fisheries, which, as good fortune would have it, is finally from B.C. It's been a long time since we've had a West Coast uh, Minister of Fisheries at the federal level. Uh, Jonathan Wilkinson's very receptive and understands as a Westerner and a coastal dweller as it is, uh, the importance of the, our iconic salmon, not just to the coast, but to the interior as well, particularly when you think of the Adams Run and the Stewart Lake Run, who uh, Indigenous people have depended on for thousands of years. Uh, the expectation that the salmon would return every year to uh, fill the uh, larders of, of communities to make sure there was enough food, not for the present, but for the whole year. These are, these are important issues. And, and I'm delighted that we came together as a province and put forward a unified position. We've got uh, some significant funding on uh, restoration and rehabilitation from the feds. We've matched that to 70-30, uh, putting money where our mouth is on salmon. And, I'm, I'm, again, it's a, a unified position. Uh, we had a member of the Green Party on the task force. Uh, the, the Liberal Party in the legislature, I'm confident, will support this initiative. So. There's a, there's a bipartisan approach to this issue, as it sh- there should be, and I don't think we should never, never say never when it comes to giving up on our salmon, because when you think of the life cycle of these extraordinary animals, uh, I would never count them out uh, after the, what they have to go through from, uh, from birth to sea and then back again. Uh, you know, that's just a, a marvelous story, and I remember it as a kid going to Goldstream Park in my community and watching the salmon return, and I was so moved by that, it's stuck with me my entire life, and I'm not giving up on the salmon, and nor should British Columbians. All right. Uh, first-time homebuyers uh, seem to be somewhat winners of the new measures in the, in the federal budget. I guess that they'll have to see if, if those measures work or not in some of the hot spots, including southern Vancouver Island and Metro Vancouver. Uh, your sense of whether some of that stuff out from Ottawa this week will indeed uh, alleviate the situation or no? Well, I've, I've been on the road chain, so I've only had... Uh, 
paper briefings on uh, what was in the federal budget. I have been, of course, talking to people. I was in Merritt last night, and housing issues are not just Lower Mainland issues. They're B.C. issues. I heard people say that the stress test uh, uh, that the federal government put in place is having a, an impact on their ability to get a mortgage, uh, to buy a home. Uh, we know that we need to have more supply for rental. We need to make sure that we're building as fast as we can to meet the needs of a growing population. And I know that the federal government understands that. So I, I'm hopeful that the policies that we brought in to, to curb the demand at the high end is bringing prices down, certainly in metro areas. That's what we want to see. But you'll also know, and I think your listeners will understand, that if you're in the housing market, if you own a home, you want the price to go up. And if you don't own a home, you want the price to come down. And as soon as you buy a house, you want the market to go up again. So it's a difficult issue uh, from a human perspective, but as a public policy direction, I think both uh, orders of government, federal and provincial, understand that there's a crisis in British Columbia and we need to coordinate our efforts. And we've been doing, I think, a pretty good job of it so far. There's always room for improvement, but I'm, I'm grateful that the federal government's turned their eyes to this and uh, we'll have to see if those policies will have an impact. Just curious, have you heard back from the governors of uh, Washington State, Oregon and California on uh, daylight savings time? And, and if so, uh, what happens next? I haven't had my correspondence book because I've been on the road, but I did hear back immediately from Governor Inslee in Washington, uh, and as a, he's running for president as well, as it turns out, so he's a busy guy, but he also recognizes that we need to do this together. Uh, Washington State has legislation before their legislature. Uh, uh, Governor Inslee agrees with me uh, that we should probably do this together. We don't have to ask the federal government uh, to change this. We can do it unilaterally. Uh, the states, Washington, Oregon, California, they have to uh, get an act of Congress. They have to pass legislation in their local legislatures, and then they have to get an act of Congress. I understand that uh, President Trump tweeted in favor of that. I don't know. I think that's public policy these days. So uh, if we've got support uh, at the national level in the states as well as the coast, I think we may well be seeing a change in how we uh, conduct our time in the fall and in the spring. And I've, most people I've talked to, in fact, in Merritt last night, a woman came up to me, her seniors group, uh, all of them, and they were liberals, they were conservatives, uh, there were new Democrats among this group. Every one of them to a person said, let's stop doing this. Let's leave daylight savings time right where it is and carry on from there. And that's certainly the, the broad uh, consensus I'm getting from the thousands and thousands of emails that have come into my office since I raised this issue. So I'm fairly confident that if we can get coordination with the, our U.S. neighbors to change our time zone together, we're going to see that happen. And last question, uh, Alberta Premier Rachel Notley dropping the writ this week. How closely will we be watching that election and, and any, any NDP help from B.C. going to Alberta or no? Well, I'm not, uh, certainly uh, the government's not involved in any election campaign. Uh, what the, the party does is up to them. What, uh, what resources have been asked for, I don't know. Uh, I do, uh, I've said uh, before, I'll say it again, I think Rachel Notley's an extraordinary woman, tough as, tough as nails and has done a fine job of representing the interests of Alberta, and I, I wish her all the best. But uh, I, I'll have to uh, work with whoever wins the election, and I look forward to that coming to an end so that we can find a way forward on, on the important issues that are affecting both of our provinces. I'd love to see more refining capacity coming out of Alberta so that we can bring the cost of gas down. I'd love to see more cooperation on a whole host of issues, but uh, we have that big challenge in front of us, and we'll have to find a way forward. Premier, always a pleasure, and I uh, hope you enjoyed your visit to Kamloops. Always great, Shane. Thanks for talking to me.
And that's Premier John Horgan talking to us uh, through his visit to Kamloops yesterday morning. And that's it for Inside Politics. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL, same time next week. 1230 Merit, 1340 Ashcroft, Cash Creek, from CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL, 610 AM, local news now.